like to welcome you all to the Department of Defense's Bloggers Roundtable for, uh, I'm sorry, for Wednesday, April 27th, 2011. My name is Petty Officer William Selby with the Office of the, Se Office of the Secretary of Defense Public Affairs, and I'll be moderating the call today. Uh, today we are honored to have as our guest Colonel Jack H. J. Pittman, Commander of the 302nd Air Wing, who will discuss how the Air National Guard, as well as other organizations, are using the MAFFSs to combat with the wildfires in Texas. We also have joining us uh, Lieutenant Colonel Condit, uh, Jennifer Jones, and, as heard uh, earlier, Lieutenant Colonel Romano, that will also be supporting. Um, and with that, sir, uh, Colonel Pittman, if you have an opening statement, the floor is yours. Well, thank you. I'd just like to introduce myself. Um, I am uh, Colonel Jay Pittman uh, from Colorado Springs. I am currently serving as the Air Expeditionary Group Commander um, for wildland firefighting, and we do report, as mentioned earlier, to a general dean down at Aft North in uh, Tyndall Air Force Base, Florida. Um, we are a organization uh, made up of and representing the interest of uh, four organizations, four wings, and they are the 146th Airlift Wing out of Channel Islands, California, the 145th Airlift Wing out of Charlotte, North Carolina, the 153rd Airlift Wing from Cheyenne, Wyoming, and the 302nd Airlift Wing out of Colorado Springs, Colorado. Um, the, the, that's three guard wings and the Air Force Reserve from, from Colorado Springs. Um, we, we make up the manpower and resource requirements to support the AEG uh, as required to support firefighting when NIFSI, that's the National Interagency Fire Center, uh, requests our support. Uh, so we're located here today for this fire in Boise, Idaho, where we have some permanent facilities uh, as long as we have uh, resources deployed into the field, which as we speak is in uh, Abilene, Texas. They're stationed at Dias Air Force Base, uh, primarily uh, fighting fires in the uh, central Texas region. So with that, I do think we've got some great subject matter experts online to answer any specific questions we may have, so I'd like to open the floor to questions. Thank you very much, sir. And uh, the first person on the line uh, was Tom Goring, and he's of Navy Cyberspace. Um, before we go to him, I'm going to go over some rules of the roundtable. Uh, please remember to clearly state your name and blog or organization in advance of your question, and respect our guest time keeping your questions succinct and to the point. And if you are not asking a question, please place your phone on mute. And, Tom, go ahead with your question. Uh, thank you. And, sir, thank you and everybody else on the line. Uh, could you explain, with Tom Goring with Navy Cyberspace, could you please explain the logistics of setting up such an event of uh, flying the number of sorties that I'm sure you guys do to put these fires out? Um, making sure there's enough fuel on board and, and the retardant that's required. Over. Yeah, this is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Condon. I'm here with Colonel Pittman. He's asked me to, to answer um, this question. Um, for the logistics, so we're, we're ready to go on a relatively short notice, but uh, that does require us to uh, jump through some hoops and, uh, and uh, get some tricks done. And uh, one of those is when we call on traditional guards members and uh, Air Force Reserve members, these are volunteers for the most part. So we're able to get them on short notice. They volunteer for the mission and uh, a lot of planning, a lot of setup, but, but relatively small package to get out the door. Um, so when we land at a place like Dias Air Force Base, we use the support that's available there without having to bring a lot of our own. And in this case, they've been fantastic down there in Texas supporting our operation and uh, providing for our needs there, feeding the troops, uh, housing the troops, uh, providing fuel supply, and uh, helping maintain our equipment. 
Roger that. And uh, Dina, you were second on the line. Dina, are you still there? Oh, d yes. Hi, this is Dina Marin, reporter from Climate Wire. Thanks for taking my question. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on to what extent the multiple conflicts we're fighting overseas affects the, av the avail availability of C-130s and air tankers to put out these fires? Yeah, this is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Conant again. Um, you know, that's always a constant balance as we have uh, our primary uh, Department of Defense mission is what we've been tasked to do. And we support NIFSI, the fire center, as able uh, from the request. In order to manage that, that uh, availability, we uh, work amongst four organizations, the, the three Air National Guard wing and the one Air Force Reserve wing. And, and only a limited number of our forces are ever tasked for this. So often it's a matter of coordinating amongst those four organizations to provide the, the balance that we can give. Can you elaborate at all on how that, sorry to do a follow-up, um, on the actual abilities of our equipment as well as the personnel? Yeah, one thing I'd like to point out is the equipment is owned by the U.S. Forest Service that we use in the back of the aircraft. So the Air Force equipment is the aircraft. and. Uh, Normally, those aircraft are used at home station for training. So when we're tasked for something like the uh, fire mission, we, we, attend, we essentially uh, slightly impact our training mission, um, and, and really it's a matter of balancing and juggling uh, less resources for training. And we try to take advantage of that. For example, if we have a crew scheduled to fly a training mission, we may use that training mission instead of taking off and landing at our home base we may take off and land at the base in Texas so that they can deliver equipment or personnel, um, but still maintaining a training capability on the part of the Department of Defense and satisfying the needs of the, the folks whose homes are endangered down in Texas. Thank you, sir. And uh, Chuck, you were next on the line? Yeah. Uh, thank you, Chuck Simmons from America's North Shore Journal. Uh, We've talked with you folks before uh, during the California fires of a couple of years ago. And again, uh, you were in North Carolina, I believe, last year for some training. And uh, two very different types of terrain from Texas. I'm wondering um, what changes um, you've made uh, to uh, your flying procedures um, in uh, in Texas with the with the very flat terrain. Thank you. Well, this is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Conn again. That's that's a great question, and really we fly in varied terrain. One of the benefits of the DoD side of this is we we prepare in a similar type of environment and with a similar type of mission on the military side for ongoing operations overseas or throughout the world. So moving from one type of train to another as far as this low-level flying is our regular mission. When it comes to the, the variances we find in firefighting, such as in Texas with the rolling hills or even flat areas, versus what we experienced uh, on our fires in 2008 in California with rugged canyons and mountains, um, that we really mitigate that with the combination of experience and training. So we go in our annual training, we'll set up drops that include flat terrain and heavy terrain, steep terrain, so that our folks are prepared for anything um, anywhere in the country come fire season. 
Does that answer uh, your question, Chuck? Yep, thank you. Okay, cool. And uh, Jill. Hi, this is Jill Hare with FireLink.com. Uh, I'd like to hear more about the coordination of the federal effort and local de fire departments in fighting these fires. Can you explain a little bit about the strategy, the direction, or input the local fire departments are giving to aid how and where the drops occur? Thank you. And I, um, I'd like to defer to NIFSI on that one if NIFSI's on the line. You know, I, this is a Texas Forest Service uh, operation down there for the most part, so being here at the national level, I can't really speak to the specifics of how that's working there. I'm sorry. Okay, thank you. And this is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Condit. Having been out in the field recently, I can speak a little bit to that um, for some recent fires that we flew on in um, in near Austin, Texas, for example. Um, you know, the local incident commander, you know, will contact uh, regional dispatch um, who will identify what resources are available and dispatch those resources. And so, you know, oftentimes we'll get calls that say, hey, I see these big uh, military firefighting aircraft out there. Can we get those um, in our neck of the woods, like from a mayor or we recently got a call from a county judge, you know, had fires burn outside their, their town. And really those are best managed at a regional level. So we often refer those folks to the sort of a regional control center, or command center, or coordination center that will be aware of all the resources available in the immediate area and dispatch the appropriate resources, whether those are military C-130s or whether those are commercial tankers or hand crews or whatever. And, and just to tag on to that, uh, you know, just to speak in a generic sense, again, um, not speaking directly for how it's working in Texas, but just in general, um, it, Lieutenant Colonel Condit is correct. You know, that the decision about whether air support is needed is made by that uh, incident commander on the ground there. Um, the incident commander and the fire managers decide whether to use air tankers and where to use them to provide support to firefighters. And what's really, I think, important to understand is that air tankers do not directly suppress fires. Um, they drop retardant that's used to reduce the intensity and slow the growth of uh, fires so that firefighters on the ground can get in there and build containment lines around them, um, which is how fires are suppressed. So the air tankers are, are working in support of those boots on the ground. And a, an incident commander and a fire manager will decide whether or not that's needed based on the objectives they've established to manage the fire and the strategies they're using to achieve them. So that's kind of a general explanation without, again, going into exactly how it works in Texas. And uh, Jill, does that answer all your questions? Yes, thank you. Okay. Uh, Tech Sergeant Grant, did you have any questions? Uh, no, no, sir, I do not have any questions. I am just listening. Roger that. And Tom, back around to you. Uh, one last question for me. Uh, to, so I understand correctly the procedure. So the USDA, or the Forest Service, actually comes out and makes a request to the Joint Forces Air Component, and then that's then they determine what commands will then participate based on, I guess, the need that's put out by the Forest Service. And does the Forest Service then fund that opportunity, or does that come through DOD funding that's already put in place, or is this unfunded request? Does the state pay for it? Uh, over? This is Lieutenant Colonel Condit. Um, the first part of that, first of all, I'd, I'd like to identify that there are pre-identified uh, sources, at least for the air tanker part. So we work with NIFSI on a year-round basis, 
and train and prepare for this. And that's per agreement between the Department of Defense, Agriculture, and Interior. Um, so we have specific units that are identified, and there's just four airlift wings that, that do that. There are, anytime additional forces are needed, those are coordinated specifically through a request from NIFSI uh, to, uh, goes up to the Secretary of Defense for approval. Um, ours has, because we're a frequently used asset, we have pre-coordinated authority for NIFSI to make that request at a slightly lower level. Um, on the other part is this, this is not a military mission. This is an interagency civil support mission. And so it falls under the U.S. Economy Act. So all expenses that the Department of Defense incurs are reimbursed uh, with NIFSI. And that's, in fact, part of what we're doing here today is sort of tracking expenses and working with the folks at the fire center to make sure we account for um, all the dollars. But just to be specific, to answer your question, yes, the Forest Service pays for it. Um, one of the things to understand is that NIFSI is not an organization. It's not an agency. It's, it's a place where actually about nine different agencies and organizations with uh, roles and responsibilities in wildland fire management uh, cooperate here. So NIFSI itself is funded by all the different agencies, and um, the Forest Service, uh, we contract with all the private um, air tankers with those fleets, and we um, fund the MAFs as well. Are you all set, Tom? Uh, yeah, I'll have a follow-up question, I guess, a little later. Okay. Uh, actually, you can go ahead and follow up now. We have plenty of time to get everybody else in. Okay. Um, well, I wasn't completely formulated my question yet, but I'll, I'll try. <laughs> the uh, the the. You mentioned the the, uh, the private organizations that also fly tankers. Are, are they able to use the Air Force bases or the uh, the other places that we have set up for the C-130s? Over. Hey, this is Lieutenant Colonel Condon again. Um, for the Air Force bases, there there are some contingencies in place to use those, but but uh, the Forest Service and other land management agencies have existing facilities already set up in uh, to handle those. Um, capabilities on the commercial civilian side, and I can let uh, the representative from the NIFSI answer further if she'd like. Yeah, that's correct. We've got um, air tanker bases set up um, all over the western United States, and in addition, we have the capability to set up portable air tanker bases as well. If, if there's a requirement to use a military base, um, the, the military has been more than forthcoming to set that up. Often that's in support of MAFs so that we don't interfere with ongoing uh, infrastructure that's out there. Thank you. Okay, and on to Dina. I'll set this round, thanks. Sure, and Chuck. Um, yeah, uh, first, uh, could we get some facts and figures on, uh, on the Texas operations so far? And also, could you refresh our memories on which units are operating MAFs 2 and which are using the older MAFs systems? This is Colonel Pittman. Um, Colonel Connors pulling up some, some numbers for you to answer the first part of your question. For the second part, uh, this year all four wings uh, will be operating uh, with the MAFs 2 system. The MAPS-1 legacy system uh, is still operational uh, at our home locations, and we do keep them well-maintained until we get the MAPS-2 
uh, more proven as far as reliability goes. We like to have a fallback capability, but for this fire season, it'll be a 100% MAVS-2 operation. Over. And for uh, for numbers, we have ongoing operations today. I don't have the tally yet for today, but as of the close of business yesterday, we had flown uh, 88 sorties um, in support of Texas with 90 airdrops, 264,000 gallons of retardant um, weighing 2.4 million pounds. You got that shot? 90 airdrops, 264,000 gallons. That's correct. Thank you. And uh, Jill, did you have another question? And if so, I don't know if uh, somebody's phone isn't on mute and we can hear them typing if you could place your phone on mute for us. Thanks. Jill, are you still there? This is Jill. I don't have any further questions. Thank you. Okay. And uh, Tom, did you have another question? Uh, that does it for me. Thank you. You're welcome. Dina? Uh, just to clarify on the numbers that were just offered, are those figures just for Air Force drops or inclusive of uh, the civilian drops as well? That's just Air Force. Uh, there's a lot of civilian assets out there, and their numbers far, far exceed the Department of Defense. Okay. Thank you. Jennifer, do you have anything more on that about the numbers? I don't have those at my fingertips. I'll see if I can round them up for you, and I've got your email, Dina. Thank you. I don't have them off right at the top of my head, though. Sure. Colonel Condit, this is Lieutenant Colonel Romano. I just want to make sure your numbers that you're showing, are all, those are all inclusive for all the operations. Is that a true statement? That's a true statement. I, and I, I think we should clarify um, those numbers for Texas operations. He's looking. Give him one second. I, I can pull those if you need those. I, I have them in front of me for clarification purposes. If you've got them, go ahead, please. I do. Um, for Texas operations, since MAFS has been involved, uh, we have flown a total, not including this calendar day, we've flown 44 sorties, and of those 44 sorties, there were 47 airdrops with a total of 132,000 gallons. And I'm sorry, on this tracker, I do not have the uh, weight of those. But 47 airdrops with 132,000 gallons uh, for the state of Texas in support of uh, wildland firefighting. And what are the dates on that, please? Uh, starting from 17 April to 26 April. Thank you. Out here. Roger that. And uh, Chuck, did you have any more follow-ups? Yeah, I wanted to ask about airspace deconfliction. Uh, you have a lot of aircraft flown by pilots uh, with varying experience and uh, at various levels, flight levels and things like that. Uh, how do you handle not running into each other? Um, are there air controllers on the ground that are trained for this? Yeah, this is Lieutenant Colonel Condit. Typically, there's an air controller in the air that is trained for this, um, what we would call an air attack which uh, orbits about uh, 2,000 feet above the fire and directs air traffic in and out and some of the fire tactics and coordinates with the folks on the ground. Um, and so we set up a restricted area around the fire, a uh, uh, fire traffic area. Airspace. And that, that airspace has been controlled by the uh, controller in that airspace. And we check in before we enter the airspace, make sure we're under positive control. And uh, we have an air-to-air fleet deconfliction uh, radio that we talk on. And which agency uh, operates the uh, 
the uh, air attack controller? There are several agencies that are operating. Primarily, those are uh, provided by the U.S. Forest Service or Bureau of Land Management, although there's some contract and um, state ones out there also. Thank you. And is that all, Chuck? That's all I have. Thank you. Roger that. And uh, anybody else have any more questions? Okay, well, I'd like to thank everybody on the line for participating, um, all of the subject matter experts and all of our bloggers. Uh, we've had some great questions and comments. As we wrap up today's call, uh, I'd like to ask, uh, Colonel, do you have any closing statements, Colonel Pittman? Uh, well, I, I appreciate everyone taking time out of their day to uh, hear what we're doing here. We're very proud of our mission. We think it's quite necessary. Um, we're about to begin our annual training uh, here in a few days, so it's going to be pretty busy here in Boise. Uh, but we stand ready to support any additional fires that may surface uh, across the U.S. Over. Thank you very much, sir. And with that, I'd like to thank, once again thank everybody for your time. And today's program will be available online at dodlive.mil, where you'll be able to access a story based on today's call, along with source documents such as the audio file, uh, which was what we were discussing earlier, the podcast, and a print transcript. Again, thank you to everybody on the line. Uh, this concludes today's event. Feel free to disconnect at this time.